Well, hello, friends, and welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in with us. If this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. It's almost the new year, and we're so glad that you've spent 2018 with us. In today's final message of the year, we're going to hear from several different voices, including some from our sister church in Corridon, Indiana, First Capital Christian Church. We're setting the stage for 2019 by looking at Jesus. So much information proves that Jesus was a real person, but was he truly the Messiah, the Son of God? Let's see what some of the people closest to Jesus had to say about him in today's message. Hey guys, good morning. Glad you're here. Um, first thing this morning, my wife informed me that it is National Bacon Day. Did you know that? That is so cool. And I understand that there's coming up an International Bacon Day. And of course, at Capital City, we also have a Bacon Day each summer. So it's pretty cool. You know how much that matters? Not much. Doesn't matter a hill of beans. We just finished Christmas. We celebrate what I call the second most deceptive moment in history. When God becomes a baby. Incredible moment. And we get to celebrate that once a year. And in 16 weeks, it's Easter. 16 weeks till Easter. And that's when we celebrate, in some respects, the most deceptive moment in history when God is a corpse on a cross. But then three days later when he walks out of a tomb. Absolutely incredible. And for this next 16 weeks, what we're going to be doing here at Capital City is we're going to be laying out a case for Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus my Lord, my Savior. I'm a Jesus follower, and we're going to try to explain why over the next 16 weeks. Most of you guys know that I've got a preaching partner. His name's Randy Kirk. He's over at First Capital Christian in Cord in Indiana, and we oftentimes develop series together. We've developed this series for the next 16 weeks together. In fact, uh, Tom Troth, who also works with us on occasion, he's a pastor over at Hillcrest here in Frankfurt, their congregation is going to be coming along as well. And what we're going to do for the next little bit is members of our two teams, Randy's team and my team, got together and we just kind of talked to you about the people we're going to be listening to. If you're going to be talking about, is Jesus really the Messiah, who's worth listening to? Who do you find credible? as far as providing information on that question. So just kind of settle in for the next few minutes, and then at the end of this thing, I'll kind of wrap it up. Henry G. Bosch made this observation. Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who are among the greatest philosophers of all antiquities. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth. His name is the most recognizable name in history. But it is one thing to be famous, and it is another to create a following of over 2 billion people in a span of 2,000 years. This man was described as the Son of God, the Christ. Are all of these people right to follow him? Is he who he claimed to be? Was Jesus just an extraordinary man? Yeah. 
or the Messiah himself. Is he Messiah? Can this man, Jesus, really save you from your sins? Can he redirect your eternity? Can he affect your day-to-day -day even 2,000 years after he walked the earth? Some say no. Others will stake their lives on the answer being yes. Today and over the next few months, we will look at the four primary sources of information about this Jesus that they call Messiah. And we will try to figure out the answer to the question, is he an extraordinary man or is he Messiah? We start our journey with a letter written by a man named Mark. His name is Mark, John Mark. If you want to know about Jesus, Mark is the place to begin. Some would say that he was with Jesus from the very beginning, even as a teenager. In fact, he was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry as Jesus was establishing himself. There are those that believe that the upper room where Jesus met with his disciples the night before he died, that that room was actually in Mark's parents' house. The reason for that is people believe that when they left there and went to the Garden of Gethsemane, that Mark followed behind. There's this little verse that many believe is autobiographical that only Mark tells. It's in Mark 14, 51 and 52. It tells about when Jesus was arrested that a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, I get this picture in my mind. He's out in this olive grove, but he somehow got to get back into town naked. Anyway, we won't go there. It's interesting when you lay that alongside another incident in his life. Paul and Barnabas are ready to set out on their first missionary journey to start churches in Turkey. John Mark goes along. However, shortly into the journey, John Mark gets homesick and decides to go back to Jerusalem. Really ticked Paul off, and it created a division between Paul and Barnabas. And so we've got this picture of this young man who wanted to be all in, and yet he was afraid. Uh, he knew it was true, but he was scared. And yet he keeps coming back. And that takes him to his time with Peter. He was with Peter when Peter was in Rome. And Peter is living in harm's way as Nero prepares to execute Peter. But this time, Mark stays. Mark was the first to write it all down. A source early in the first century says that uh, Peter was uh, interpreted by Mark. That is to say that as Peter wrote down or gave his account of Jesus' ministry, that Mark was the secretary, the interpreter that wrote all of those things down, careful not to omit anything about Jesus' ministry or his death and resurrection. The uh, belief is that as Mark put this together, he was careful not to leave anything out, but he also was not so concerned about the order uh, of things that were said or done, but rather he fit his discourse to fit his audience. In other words, he's writing to Romans, and Mark organized his material to be consumed by an, a Roman audience, so it tells how he wrote it and what he included. 
He wrote this really fast-paced narrative. 43 times he uses the word immediately as a transition from one event to the next. He doesn't spend much time with discourse. He's more concerned with action. And because his audience isn't from Israel, they are Romans. Instead, Mark takes the time to often explain Palestinian customs that they would be unfamiliar uh, with those customs. For example, when the uh, hand washing or the ceremonial rites of, of cleansing, because uh, they were not from Israel, he pauses to explain some uh, Aramaic expressions that he uses. In fact, those that study this stuff would tell you that it looks like Mark wrote it originally in Aramaic and then translated it himself into Greek at a later time. But translating, being careful with those Aramaic trans, uh, expressions that Romans wouldn't have understood. His language is so vivid, and it's so full of detail, fast-paced and exciting, introducing his audience to a Jesus that, frankly, most of them had never heard uh, his name before. Mark lays out his case that Jesus is the Messiah. And in that case, he bases it upon the power that's demonstrated in all that Jesus did. Romans were infatuated with power. And story after story after story line up to tell of Jesus' power to heal and his power over nature and his power over demons, to cast out demons, even his power over death. The awe-inspiring power proves that Jesus was no ordinary man. But all of that power only draws you to the end of the story where this man died on a cross and he came back to life. Can anyone short of the Son of God make a claim that he would do that and then back it up? Now, Mark was not the only man who had firsthand information about Jesus. We can find out more for our case with a different perspective, this time from a man named Matthew. He wasn't liked by many. It's probably safe to say that even some of his family didn't like him because they thought that he had sided with the Roman government. His profession left him with more enemies than friends, but there was one who saw something special in him. So much so that instead of calling him by his given name, Levi, Jesus gives him a new name, Matthew, which meant a gift of God. Levi was a dishonest tax collector driven by greed until that chance encounter with Jesus that led him to becoming one of Jesus' disciples. We first meet him in Capernaum in his tax booth on the main highway. He was collecting duties on imported goods brought by farmers and merchants and caravans. Under the Roman government's system, Levi would have paid all the taxes in advance, and then he would charge the citizens and travelers so he could reimburse himself. Tax collectors were notoriously corrupt because they charged far and above what was owed to ensure their own personal profit. The citizens didn't like it, but there wasn't much they could say or do because Roman soldiers were there to enforce his decisions. But on this particular day, Jesus, whom I'm sure Levi had heard about, comes walking by his booth. The recorded words are few, but powerful enough to make a man leave his job and decide to do something and maybe even become something different. Follow me. 
and Levi, who had been hated and despised by many, now becomes Matthew, and he sees that he is truly loved and has a purpose and meaning to his life. He has been called a gift of God. On the day that Jesus invited Matthew to follow him, Matthew wants to invite his friends to meet this man, and so he invites them all to his house for dinner. For some, Jesus and his disciples had gone too far. They were eating dinner with tax collectors and sinners. But for Matthew, this was his first opportunity to reach out and make a difference in the lives of those around him by showing that his life had changed. For many, his selection as a disciple is strange, but Matthew was uniquely qualified to be a disciple. As a tax collector, he would have been an accurate record keeper and keen observer of people. These details helped him survive and thrive in his former profession and life, and I'm sure those same traits served him well when he sat down to write the Gospel of Matthew some 25 years later. For many in this day and time, it was scandalous and offensive that Jesus chose a tax collector to be one of his closest followers since they were so hated by the Jews. But of the four gospel writers that we will look at in this upcoming series, Matthew was the one who presented Jesus to the Jews as their hoped-for Messiah, doing his very best to tailor his account of Jesus' life to answer the questions that many of them would have had. And I believe he was able to do so because Matthew was one of them. He knew the struggles that they would have with this Messiah because I'm sure that he probably struggled with those same questions as well. Matthew displayed one of the most radically changed lives in the Bible in response to the invitation from Jesus that day. He did not hesitate to do as Jesus commanded. He did not look back. He left behind a life of wealth and security for a life of poverty and uncertainty. He gave up the pleasures of this world for the promises of an eternal life. The remainder of Matthew's life is uncertain. Tradition says that he preached in Jerusalem for about 15 years following the resurrection of Jesus, and then he headed out onto the mission field to other countries. History tells us that Matthew died as a martyr for the cause of Christ. As a matter of fact, Fox's Book of Martyrs supports the martyrdom of Matthew in the country of Ethiopia somewhere in the mid-60s AD. As we begin this journey into the making of a Messiah, it's important to note that the Gospel of Matthew was probably the most widely read and frequently used gospel in the formative years of the early church. Manlio Simonetti, a renowned expert in patristic literature, states of Matthew's gospel, it is no exaggeration to state that the faithful who lived between the end of the first and second centuries came to know the words and deeds of Christ on the basis of this text. We will dig into the gospel of Matthew in February. Of the four gospels, his is the featured teaching of Jesus most vividly, so that's what we will be focusing on a teacher like no other, with authority like no other. Matthew had a unique perspective because of his background, but perhaps the most educated man to write about Jesus in what we call the Gospels was a man named Luke. In order for us to answer the question, is Jesus Messiah, then we must consider the Gospel according to Luke. that we're going to listen to will be a guy named Luke. 
Now, this Luke was an incredible guy. He wrote only two of the books of our New Testament, but if you add up all of the verses, all of the words, he actually wrote more of our New Testament than any other writer, including Paul, who wrote 13 of the New Testament books. And did you know that uh, Luke was the only Gentile who wrote in any books of our New Testament, which, which may explain why he is so interested in Jesus' heart for the Gentiles, people like most of us, as, as well as Jesus' heart for other people that uh, were often looked down on, people like the poor, the outcasts, women and children. We Jesus followers oftentimes try to lift up people that other people put down, and you can actually trace a lot of that back to this guy, Luke. Now, why should we listen to this guy? He didn't grow up with Jesus. He didn't even grow up in Judea where Jesus did his stuff. Well, Luke was one of the early adopters of Jesus, and he was a flat-out gifted guy. We know he was a physician, so he was well-educated. He was also incredibly smart. I used to teach a lot of New Testament Greek for a while, and when I wanted to be nice to my students, I would have them translate from one of the books of John. If I wanted to be mean to my students, I'd force them to translate from Luke, because it's incredibly complex, it's quite elegant, quite sophisticated. We also know that Luke was a very, very careful historian and journalist. In fact, Luke opens up uh, the Gospel of Luke with these words. He says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Well, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, which means he did his homework, I have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. And his work just checks out amazingly well. Scholars have put nearly every detail of Luke, both in the gospel as well as in the book of Acts, under a microscope. The people that he mentions, the places that he talks about, their politics, their customs, the titles he uses, about every detail that they can check on. Everything checkable checks out. No other ancient work gives us so many places to test the veracity of the writer. And Luke is literally unsurpassed in his trustworthiness. In fact, some people have called him the greatest historian in ancient history. You know why? Well, he was telling the truth, and he was constantly rubbing shoulders with people who were there. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, which is Luke's sequel, the Jesus story, and when you read the letters of Paul, we discover that He was there with the big characters a lot. He worked right there with Paul. He was with Paul in Macedonia and Greece when Paul was planning the earliest churches. He was with Paul in Judea, where he was also able to rub shoulders with other of the apostles and many of the people who had been with Jesus from the time he began his ministry up through the resurrection. He was with Paul in Rome when Paul was on trial for his life. You see, Luke didn't just read books about Jesus, that kind of thing. He he didn't just surf the internet looking for articles on Jesus. He was part of the story, and he hung out with people who were there, uh, all the way from the, the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way to the resurrection. So Luke is worth listening to. Luke writes the story of Jesus for a guy that is named Theophilus, which literally means a, a lover of God. In fact, he seems to be explaining Jesus to anyone who is a genuine lover of God, a God seeker like most of us. And the part of Luke that stands out most from the other Gospels is the part where Jesus makes his final trip to Jerusalem. 
There Jesus is kind of prepping his disciples. Jesus is the Messiah, even though he's gonna die and they didn't expect a Messiah who's gonna die. He's a different kind of Messiah than they expected. And if you're gonna follow a different kind of Messiah, then you've got to expect to be a different kind of Jesus follower. And that's the part of Luke we're gonna be exploring in our making of the Messiah. It's the final days of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is pulling down the veil. I am the Messiah, Jesus says. Maybe not the kind that you expected, but the kind that you need. And so we're gonna follow the Gospel of Luke as he tells us about some of the most messianic stuff that Jesus does leading up to the death and the resurrection. Now we've heard from three sources so far, but the fourth source is very different from the others. The book of John, the last gospel, is a bit of an outlier that shares many different bits of information that will be vital towards making Jesus the Messiah. When you lay the gospel of John alongside the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're often left with more questions than you are answers. Um, It's the Gospel of John, actually, that has probably raised the most contention among scholars. Um, For the last 1,500 years or so, there's been several disagreements about about this book and questions like, who's the author? Um, What is he trying to do? How does Christ's identity change because of the book of John, because of the gospel of John. It's, it's these kinds of questions and several more that, that should lead us to a place of curiosity about who this man who wrote this book is and why we should listen to it. And I think when talking about credibility, talking about reliability of a, of a book, of a source, a good place to begin is often with who the person is who wrote it, who the original author was. And we know from both internal and external evidence that the author of the Gospel of John is, is most likely John the Evangelist. This character is mentioned in, in the other Gospels. It's, it's this John who is the brother of of the Apostle James, and it's James and John who are sons of a man named Zebedee. It's, it's these two who Jesus uh, looks at, and he calls them sons of thunder in Mark chapter 3. Now, it's probable that this John was also the first cousin of the one under speculation, Jesus. And it's actually John was included in Jesus's inner three, the, 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 most, the closest to Jesus of the 12 apostles alongside James and Peter. Now, that's important because that means that John would have been present then uh, at the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead. He would have been present at this transfiguration event where he got to experience and see Moses and Elijah alongside Jesus. And he would have been present in the uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where, where Jesus prayed before the cross event took place. And, and furthermore, if this John is the same John who the gospel— of John identifies as the beloved disciple. If that's the, if that's him, if this is the author, then this John also would have been present at the Last Supper, 
reclining right next to Jesus himself. He would have been standing at the foot of the cross next to Jesus's mother. He would have been running alongside Peter to be the first witnesses, some of the first witnesses to the empty tomb. And he also would have been one of the first to, 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 to recognize the risen Lord after he had come back from the grave. And Outside of the Gospels, you have other experiences, other occurrences of this man. You have uh, in the book of in the book of Acts, John appears four times. Each time he appears with Simon Peter, another author of quite a bit of the New Testament, who is also a part of the inner three, and he's also a close companion of Jesus. Furthermore, you have the Apostle Paul, who. In his writings, he refers to this John alongside Peter and James, inner three, as he calls them pillars of the church. So don't misunderstand this. You have this author, Paul, who is responsible and credited for the majority share of the books of the New Testament. This author gives credibility to John as an authoritative voice in the early church. So to discount John as credible, um, that would be, what, what you would be doing is you would be discounting the credibility of the Apostle Paul. You'd be discounting the credibility of Simon Peter. You'd be discounting the other four works that this John wrote, John 1, 2, 3, and Revelation. And thus, it would be discrediting pretty much the New Testament as a whole. It would be a massive mistake not to listen to this John, this brother of James, this son of Zebedee, this son of thunder, this companion of Paul, prisoner alongside Peter, one of the 12, one of Jesus's inner three, a pillar of the church. No, this is not a testimony to take lightly. And with this kind of resume, you could assume that this man, John, had quite a bit to say. Now, not only is who the author is, is an important thing, but also what the author has to say might be even more important. You see, John, he is unlike the other three gospels in virtually 90% of what he writes. You see, John, he spends more time on the final week of Jesus's life than the other three. And so it's clear that, that John wants us, wants the reader to understand the identity of this Christ and he also wants us to understand the passion event as a whole. Um, it, it's just different from it. For example, you have, uh, you have the Gospel of Mark. You have this story where you have this, this man who claims to be a Messiah who would spit in dirt, turn it into mud, rub it on someone's face. And, and, and so you have this different kind of image than you have of the image of Jesus in the Gospel of John, where you have this picture of this everlasting, future-telling, all-knowing, glorified, risen Messiah. You see, John is concerned with two things. He's concerned with one, who Christ is, and two, our response to who he is. You see, John wrote this gospel so fearful believers would be able to place their confidence in Jesus as the Messiah, and that we would understand that salvation and everlasting life doesn't begin when you die, but it begins when you believe that this man truly is the Son of God. If Jesus had died on a cross and not risen from the dead, 
there would be no way for his life to have had any enduring value. He would have faded into history as a good teacher who was executed as a heretic. But look at the dramatic impact he has had on our world. I am convinced that any honest person who will take the time to examine the historical record can only conclude that he has risen. There is no other way to explain his extraordinary impact on civilization. But it's not up to me. We have presented the evidence, and now you have to decide. Is he simply an extraordinary man, or is Jesus the Messiah? I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a grandpa, that's probably the coolest. I'm a senior pastor, colleague to some, boss to others, a neighbor friend to some, aggravation to many others, and none of that amounts to a hill of beans in my mind compared to this. I am a Jesus follower, I'm a Jesus follower, that's the one that matters forever, that's the one that can have the biggest impact forever. And it's going to be harder and harder, you know, to continue to build Jesus followers. I, I'm hoping that most of you guys are Jesus followers. Our job as a church is to, to lead people to Jesus, to help them become Jesus followers, and then to drag each other to heaven. That's, that's what we're about. The fastest growing religious group in America is the one called the nuns. I'm not talking about little old ladies and black habits, okay? I'm talking about people and they ask, uh, what's your religious preference? And they say, none. I have no religious preference. Back in the 1940s, about 5% of the people in our country, if you asked about their religious preference, they'd say none. Fast forward about 50 years, 8% said their religious preference was none. Hmm. 10 years later, that number had about doubled to 15%. Within just the last few years, it has gone up to about 25%. And the younger they are, the more frequently they identify themselves as a nun. I have no religious preference. And guys, it has eternal consequences. Some of our kids are drifting that direction. And if they join that bunch, heaven and hell is at stake. You know what the problem is? I mean, this is at least a piece of the problem. Too often people do not come face to face with the real Jesus. What they come face to face with is a fantasy, a myth, a straw man. Not the real Jesus. I mean, our kids are walking away and a lot of times our kids are being dragged away by people who think they're smart but have never come face to face with the real Jesus. The real Jesus. Some of you guys are marginalizing Jesus. You're giving him second, third, fourth place in your life because you have never come face to face with the real Jesus. See, a lot of people kind of picture Jesus as kind of the cosmic Mr. Rogers, maybe a really nice guy, maybe the nicest guy ever. Why would they kill the nicest guy ever? It's not it. A lot of people think he was just a great religious teacher, maybe the greatest religious teacher ever, and he was. That's not enough. That's not enough to get him dead. 
Jesus was a good man, right? Good, clearly. A man, kind of. It's not why they killed him. He worked these miracles, and these were miracles weren't enough to get him dead. They were enough to call attention to him, so people had to pay notice. He began to teach things, to say things. It was enough to make people cock their heads and maybe even make them mad, because what he was saying kind of called into question everything they held sacred, but maybe not quite enough to kill him yet. Then he started saying things about himself. And he started doing things. He started making claims. And that was enough to get him dead. He started claiming to be more than what any man should claim. And they killed him. They killed him because they knew that if he was right, everything had to change. If, if he was right, you've got to change. He's got to become the center of your life. So we killed him. And God said, uh-uh. No. Hmm. Next four months, leading up to Easter, we're going to try to dig into what we hope is the real Jesus. The real Jesus. And we're going to be listening to what I believe are incontrovertible witnesses. These guys are worth listening to. Next week, we're going to start with the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. Mark focuses on the power of Jesus. Jesus had power like no other. Incredible power. And then as we go into the month of February, we're going to dive into the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew focuses on Jesus the teacher. And if you really begin to listen to what Jesus said, it'll make you cock your head. It'll make you change the way you look at life, the way you look at the world, the way you look at yourself. We're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. And then in March, we're going to dive into the Gospel of Luke. Luke spends more time than any of the other Gospels on that last few weeks or months leading up to the cross called the journey to Jerusalem. And that's the part of his Gospel where Jesus starts pulling down the veil. He starts telling people, I am the Messiah. Not the kind of Messiah that you've been expecting, but the real Messiah, the kind of Messiah that you need. And if you follow the real Messiah, it's going to change the kind of person you're going to be. A Jesus follower of this Messiah is going to look different than what you expected. And then leading up to Easter, we're going to dig into the Gospel of John. John spends more time on Passion Week, those last few days of Jesus' life, than any of the other Gospels. We're going to let John lead us as we look at what it meant for Jesus to die on a cross and what it meant when Jesus raised from the dead. This is hugely important stuff. We hope that by the end of this series, you will have a much clearer understanding of the real Jesus. A real Jesus who will not be marginalized. He will not be. The fact is, when you come face to face with the real Jesus, you're going to have to come to one of three conclusions. You're going to either have to call him a maniacal liar. What he's saying he knew wasn't true, and he's misleading people, misleading people like us, and has been for millennia. Or you're going to call him a raving lunatic. He really believed this stuff, and it's not true. Not a man worth following. Or you're going to call him the Lord of your life. That's the only options that he gives you. Liar, lunatic, or the Lord of your life. And coming face to face with the real Jesus is going to cause you to make that kind of a decision about him. 
We're going to add a couple of things to it. Not this Wednesday, but the next Wednesday, we're going to have some classes on Wednesday nights. Those Wednesday night classes are going to follow up on what we do on Sunday mornings. We're going to dig deeper into the themes that we dig into on, on Sunday mornings. And you can go ahead and sign up for those classes even now and next week out in the foyer. Vern's going to have some sign-ups available for that. We also have some invite cards. Making of the Messiah, these invite cards. Listen, guys, there's some people around you that you know. They may be a colleague. They may be a classmate. They may be a kid that you think are drifting toward the nuns or maybe they're already solidly there. They need to come face to face with the real Jesus. Someone you care about, invite them to come along. Help us to, to help them meet, come face to face with the real Jesus. This is life-changing stuff. That's where we're going for the next four months. I hope you'll make the commitment to come along, make it a priority. Let's start this year off right. Let's come face to face again with the real Jesus. You guys have a great week. Stand tall for God and hope you all come back next week. Thanks.